welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your host Kinari and Rabab. Welcome to Made in India SLP everyone. In today's episode, we will be conversing with Dr. Anu Subramaniam, an experienced clinician, professor and researcher in the field of stuttering. Rabab, can you please go ahead and introduce our guest for today? It is my honor to introduce Dr. Anu Subramaniam. She's a clinically trained speech language pathologist, clinical associate professor and director of clinical programs in the communication sciences and disorders program at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. She completed her undergraduate degree at the Aliyavar Jung National Institute for Speech and Hearing Disabilities in Mumbai and a master's degree at All India Institute of Speech and Hearing Science, Mysore. She also holds her certification as an early intervention specialist. Dr. Subramanian's research and practice are focused on the areas of stuttering, early childhood, and clinical education. She has published numerous scientific papers in national and international journals, reviewed a few book chapters, has been a part of training programs and conferences at regional, national, and international meetings. Over the years, Anu has been a recipient of various awards, including for her research in genetics and stuttering. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for um, having me here. It is a pleasure to be here, even though I, um, I yeah, that award that you mentioned is really old, so I'm not sure. Um, that it's current to what I'm doing. My PhD dissertation was related to the area of somewhat related to genetics and stuttering, but that's not what I've been doing clinically. So, um, but thank you for that very wonderful introduction. What a pleasure to have you here today, Anu. You have been a practicing clinician for over two decades now. So has the way you assess and treat children who stutter changed from when you first started practicing and researching? It definitely has um, in many ways. So when I first started, when we were first studying stuttering, when I was first studying stuttering, and I won't tell you how long ago it is so you don't know my age, <laughs> um, but um, we, were, we were still studying about the bloodstein stages and um, the different uh, tracks of stuttering, things like that. And the idea was um, at that point that we were talking a lot about not bringing attention to stuttering. Um, we, the idea was that it was the whole diagnosogenic theory where if a person talks about stuttering, then the kid is more likely to continue stuttering. If we bring attention to stuttering, then the kid is likely, more likely to get more severe with stuttering and things like that. And so one of the things that was really um, important was we tell the parents, don't talk about stuttering, don't bring attention to it, and change everything that you're doing in the house to help the kid, but you know, don't bring up stuttering yourself. And now the difference is that we say, talk about stuttering. Like, why is it something like, why is it so taboo? Why is it a taboo topic? Why do we want to pretend that it's not happening? Um, I heard in a conference some years ago, someone said, you know, if a kid falls down, you don't pretend it didn't happen. You pick them up and say, How, are you okay? You know, what's wrong and stuff. And so this is sort of like they're tripping in their mouth. And so why do we pretend it's not happening? Why do we act like this kid, does nothing happen and we're going to act like it's okay? Like act like, you know, you've done something so wrong that we're not even going to talk about it. And we assume that the kid doesn't understand that there's something's wrong, different with their speech. 
And so I think talking about it helps discussing it. So if you had a kid with asthma or diabetes or something that had needed medication or needed to like be careful about how when they ran outside or things like that, you talk about it. So um, in the same way, talking about it in a matter of fact way is really helpful. Um, and like there are adults who stutter who say that the whole hush hush treatment of stuttering really wasn't helpful for them when they were a kid. It's really important to say that it's not anyone's fault that the child stutters, especially not the child's fault and definitely not the parents' fault. The other thing that was important, and it's still continued now, is I think one of the goals of stuttering therapy at that age, that many years ago, was the goal was fluency. And the goal was to say, you know, we'll do everything we can to help you be fluent, we'll teach you tools, we'll teach techniques and strategies to help you be fluent. And now more and more, the idea is we want to help you, we want to give you your um, the space for your speech motor system to help it become more fluent if it can be. But really, if you're pers going to persist in stuttering and you have those genetic loading, you might continue to stutter. So how about we give you a good, positive way of communicating? How about we teach you self-efficacy in communication? And um, especially as you get to like older kids um, and they're not yet in, not in preschool anymore in their school age, like we're not going to spend all this time working on just fluency shaping and fluency um, enhancing strategies, but we're going to talk a lot more about emotions and um, thoughts. And that's the same with adults who stuttered. We're hopefully as a field spending less time just talking about strategies and techniques and practicing the strategies and techniques and spending a lot more time in acceptance of stuttering and not letting the stigma of stuttering impact a person's choices and life decisions. So correct me if I'm wrong, but something that we've learned, or at least I have learned in school at the start of my speech language pathology journey was to be hush-hush about the stuttering with children. Mm -hmm. When did that change? Because um, I haven't seen fluency disorder clinically in a long time. But is that something recent or something that clinicians have been following since a long time now? And clinicians in India should be following as well. So I don't know when exactly it changed. I feel like I might have been like six, seven years. There have been people who've been talking about it for a while. Uh, again, the idea is when do you start talking about it? And before it used to be in school age, like when you're sure the kid won't stop stuttering anymore, then you can start talking about it. Um, I know that Bill Murphy, who used to work at Purdue, where I had a few years, I had the pleasure of working with him for a few years, used to talk about self-disclosure and things like that, even 20, 25, 30 years ago. Um, but it, I think the idea of preschool kids the idea was let's not bring it up to preschool kids because they should just think they're coming to play and they're not really coming for therapy and we're not trying to change their speech and things like that. Um, but I feel like it might have been like 12 years ago when I was at a conference when I heard someone say, what if a kid falls? Like, are you going to pretend that they haven't fallen? Like, are you, do you just like walk away and assume they'll get up and be, be okay on their own? Or do you pick them up and say, are you okay? Is everything okay? So why do we act like this is not okay for stuttering. My advisor, who is a person who stutters, Dr. Ehud Yairi, who's done a lot of work with persistence and recovery, used to say that as his dad, and um, I probably still says it, his dad and uncle used to stutter too. And they were a family where everything was often talked about, and, but they never talked about stuttering. So even 20 years ago, when I was doing my PhD with him, he would say, you know, talk about it. He would tell parents it's okay to talk about it. 
um, mm-hmm. because that was the big um, stigma in his family. And he used to think like, well, this must be so bad because my uncle and my dad do this, but we don't even talk about it. So I must be doing something really bad. Like this must be really wrong. And so he had talked, I, I remember this conversation with him where he told me this 20 some years ago. And, um, and so he was telling parents that this t- at that time, I don't know that it was in, changed into the general um, understanding of um, how we think about stuttering. But I definitely feel like in the last five, six years, we've been talking about it a lot more, I maybe even more, like at least 10 years since I've been doing preschool fluency therapy, mm-hmm. we've been talking about, I've been talking about stuttering. And so it may be like small spurts, more clinical than research. And so maybe it's not in as many textbooks and it's not in as many research articles, but um, I think definitely many clinicians, many good clinicians do talk about stuttering at a young, at a young age with parents, with their kids. And I think as we've had more and more adults who stutter, who are now part of the community, whose voices are being heard, which is really, really important, that once we're hearing their voices, they're saying it was helpful for us to talk about stuttering. It was important for us to, for parents to like accept us with our stuttering. Um, and that's what's helpful for us. And so they have been telling us to talk about stuttering. And so that's been helpful as well. Yeah, so maybe that's what changed everyone's thoughts is like as adults started talking about their childhood and reported what worked and didn't work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yes, thank you. Um, India is a melting pot of cultures, right? It is so common for every child to speak more than two languages, making them at least bilingual or trilingual. Mm-hmm. When it comes to assessing these multilingual children, what should we as clinicians focus on or what would our assessment look like? Can you, can you please elaborate a little bit on that topic? I think that's a great question because um, what happens is we in India um, use a lot of literature and information that comes from um, the West, right? And I mean, a lot of the information comes from here. And so we use all that information to make decisions that are clinical decisions. Um, Having said that, like you said, Rabab, that India is a completely uh, is completely different, and it's a melting pot. And there's lots of bilingual kids. It's lots of multilingual kids. And I know when I was growing up, not growing up, when I was going to school, there was a lot of like choose one language, don't use both languages, and things like that. Um, don't use more than one language. And now we know that for kids with autism, for kids with um, SLI or DLD, um, for all of that, the, the, the prevailing information is use as many languages as they can and it's fine. But the thing to think about is, um, you, so I think the con- things to consider while doing it, and recently, Courtney Bird, who's at UT Austin, has been doing some work in um, terms of bilingual kids and Spanish-English kids um, and um, stuttering. And so what they have, what they suggested is, first of all, that you need to do both evaluations in both English and Spanish, or both languages that this child speaks in order to understand what is actually where their speech is more impacted. There's one study by Dr. Jairam in, uh, from India, which is one of the few um, bilingual studies from years ago. And this was like in 1983. So Dr. Jairam did this years ago. And it was which language to assess bilingual children. And in Dr. Jairam's world, 
study, he found that the kids that they assessed were more disfluent in Kannada. So really, I think this is something that Indian students, if you're out there, if any Indian students are listening, if you're thinking of a thesis topic, if you're thinking of a project, this isn't really important project to look at. Like look at uh, Courtney um, Bird's article from 2015 or from 2018, and you can use the same methodology to do some studies in Indian languages. Because what um, Courtney Bird found is that kids who are bilingual typically or have, even who are not stuttering, have more than three stuttering like disfluencies in their speech because they have a lot more repetitions like part word repetitions or they have more um, whole word repetitions or mazes in their speech compared to kids who don't stutter, compared to monolingual kids. And so it's really important to not um, assess both languages, but it's also important to think about what we're considering stuttering in bilingual kids. Uh, what they found is that kids who have, um, who are bilingual, the way to identify stuttering is probably looking at more sound prolongations or blocks, like having those kinds of things in their speech versus repetitions is more likely to show stuttering. Also, if they have um, atypical tension and or rhythm in their iteration, so when they go, uh, 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 I, mm -hmm. instead of going that, they, all of those us were very similarly spaced. Like they weren't, they were the same rhythm, the same um, duration. But if they go, ah, 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 I, then they're more likely stuttering. Um, and that, that's more of a concern. The other thing to consider is parent concerns. Parents are used to listening to their kids speaking more than one language. They're used to being exposed to all kids speaking more than one language. And so if a parent says, I'm really concerned about my kid, you know, they're, they're doing something different than my other kids have done. Or the other kids I know in the community who speak these two languages are not speaking like this. My kid speaks differently. Then that's something to take into consideration too. So to summarize, having to do the analysis uh, assessment in both languages and to make sure that you're looking at the kinds of disfluencies while you're making decisions and considering prolongations and blocks as the problem um, or not problem, but as the diagnostic marker for stuttering versus any repetitions, unless the repetitions have like increased tension and or rhythmic differences and considering parental concern and parental input as well. That was very nicely said and explained. Thank you for that. I was just thinking about it. If suppose a child has more disfluencies in a particular language than the other language, so would you recommend the parents that they stimulate more using one language than the other one or no? Not anymore um, because I think the idea is that, um, you know, you want to talk as a parent, you want to talk with your kid in the most language that seems most con convenient and comfortable to you, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm less, com if my kid is stuttering less in say, um, so I speak Tamil, Kannada and English and, and Hindi, but if my child learns, is learning both Tamil and English and stutters less in, stutters less in Tamil and more in English, um, but some things I can't explain as well in Tamil anymore. Like I've been here for 20 some years in the US. And so some things are just easier for me to explain in English because now my brain thinks in English. I went, I've studied in English and things like that. And so if I have to teach my, talk to my child only in Tamil, um, then my language and my grammar and my uh, variety of vocabulary is reduced. So I'm giving him a less um, robust language system to begin with. 
And so it's more important that we have a, but on the other hand, if I want him to learn Tamil and that's the only way to get him to learn Tamil, then I'm going to speak to him in Tamil. So I think stuttering and the amount of stuttering in which language doesn't really make an impact on, shouldn't really impact decision-making regarding what language you use um, to talk to your kid. I think speak in what feels comfortable to you, what your goals are for your kid, um, and stuttering shouldn't impact that decision. A preschooler with stuttering comes to your clinic. What does a typical therapy session look like? As a proponent of eclectic approach, where do I begin my therapy? One thing that we know about evidence-based practice is that you want to look at research literature and see what literature is out there that says that's the best, that's the best op- options for the kid. The other thing you want to be careful about, though, with evidence-based practice, it's not that one size fits all, right? Like, so part of the evidence-based practice, one part of the triangle is the research, but the other part is the client values, client and caregiver and family values and goals. And the other part of it is the, um, is the clinician expertise. So there is a program called the LITCOM program. Um, and the goal of the, and the LITCOM program uses um, operant conditioning in order to help increase their fluency. So what we can do is you can do the LITCOM program, right? But I'm not training the LITCOM program. So if I try to do the LITCOM program, it probably is not the best therapy for the client. Even, um, and there are some kids that are more sensitive and the LITCOM program does a little bit of um, asking for corrections or negative um, corrections for stuttering moments. And if a kid is really sensitive, then maybe that's not the best option. Is the parent willing to do this? Is the parent willing to spend all this time doing that is the third question. And if the parent does not, then that's not the best option. Um, Nan Bunsen Ratner had an article some years ago about the um, different ways you can do therapy with kids. And the idea is at the end of the day, whatever approach you use, there are three different things. There's a LITCOM program, there is the restart, which is our demands and capacities model that's from Europe. And then there is parent-child interaction therapy from um, England that have all been found to be effective. So what I think is, I don't think there's a one size fits all. So you have to see what the kid needs, what the family needs, what they're able to do and work on that. The thing that's common among all of them is that really what we want to do is make sure the parents are involved because whatever this is true for early intervention too. Whatever you do in an hour session a week is not going to make a difference unless you get the parents involved, unless the parents are also comfortable talking about stuttering, unless the parents are also comfortable just talking to the kid, doing the strategies you're asking them to do or trying whatever you're talk, asking them to do. Um, there, it, it doesn't have as much of an impact. So Having parents involved, I think, is an important thing, or even caregivers involved. The other thing that I've already talked about is really having an open discussion of stuttering between the parents and the kids, like letting parents talk about it openly in um, the house as much as possible. The things that I do that are somewhat, depending on the kid again, is I do a lot of playing with your speech. So let's try talking really fast. Let's try talking slow. Let's try talking loud. Let's try adding tension. Let's try... To make stuttering, let's, um, the other thing that Bill Murphy used to talk about is you're the expert on your own speech, uh, you're the, the, that these kids are experts in stuttering and they're the experts on their speech. So letting them be like, you're the expert on your stuttering. Show me how you stutter. Let's give parents a grade and teach them how to stutter, teach them how to stutter well. 
And so you're making, you're desensitizing stuttering. And then also you can do stuff with the demands and capacities model, which is things like just reducing the demands on a kid. So one thing that we all do as adults is when you see an, a grandparent or something, you'll be like, oh, tell them where you went this weekend. Tell them what you did. Tell them, tell them what you played with. That's putting a demand on a kid, right? Like, so if you can take off that demand and just let the kid be, then, um, then that can, they can come and talk about their own, their day without that pressure. So I often will say like, make comments, invite them to talk, but don't force them to talk. So saying, instead of saying, tell me what you tell grandma, what you did, tell party what you did, you can say, oh, I, I think party will be so interested to hear where you played this weekend. So then you've invited him to talk about it, but you're not forcing the kid to talk about it. Um, the other thing you can do is when you pick up your kid from school, your preschooler, as parents, we tell the kid, um, we say, don't always ask 18 questions, right? You pick up the kid, what did you eat? Who did you play with? Who did you sit with? What did you do? And that's a lot of demands on them again. So instead, like, oh, tell me your favorite thing. Maybe you want to tell me your three favorite things. So asking like open-ended questions like that may be easier for some kids as well. Um, in general, like just having interaction styles where you're saying to the kid, I'm really more interested in what you're saying. I'm following your lead. Um, I am interested. I'm going to talk slowly. I'm going to ask, increase the time. Like I'm not doing this at all here, but increasing pause time between what I'm saying. So stopping a little bit between sentences. It gives the kid permission mm -hmm. to stop between sentences too. And it gives them the time for their speech motor system to catch up to their linguistic system. Because a lot of times their linguistic system is probably ahead than compared to their speech motor system. So those are some things that you can teach parents to do. You can do in sessions. You can talk about stuttering. Things like that is what I would do mostly in these sessions. So when I was studying fluency, we had a big project where we had to go outside in the community and practice pseudo stuttering and then write the paper on people's perception and the whole mm -hmm. experience. Coming to pseudo stuttering, would you recommend it as a technique for desensitization in, in young children like preschoolers or it's more for adults? I definitely use it for adults. I use it with school age kids too. I had a group of seven year olds this summer and I used it with them a bunch. I didn't call it pseudo stuttering. I was saying, let's play with our speech, right? Let's play like, okay, so stuttering has three different types. There's blocks, there's our stops and bumps, which is repetitions and prolongations, which is like long um, holdouts or something. And I'd be like, okay, now tell me your favorite pizza topping, but use bumps. And so That's it sort of desensitizes great. them, but in a game. Right. Mm -hmm. And now let's um, let's do play hangman. But the next time you choose a word, you choose a letter. I want you to use a block and show me a block and block on it. The other thing, like I said, that Bill Murphy used to do is he would teach. The, I mean, would ask the kid to teach me to stutter. And so you tell me I'm going to do a block. You tell me if I did a good block or a not so good block. Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down because you're the expert on stuttering. So you can teach me how to stutter better than I can teach you anything about stuttering. And so that all desensitizes a kid to stuttering. The other thing that Joseph Sheehan talked about many, many years ago, which um, Vivian Siskin uses now with avoidance reduction therapy, is this idea of role congruence and role dissimilarity. So people who stutter have 
moments that they're fluent and there are moments that are they're disfluent right so sometimes they can pass as fluent and sometimes they're disfluent so sometimes their their identity is that of a fluent person sometimes their identity is as a disfluent person so when they meet someone for the first time um role incongruence that they have like when am i going to be found out as a for right now i'm talking and i'm fluent and then i'm going to stutter and they're going to know my identity is not as a, as a fluent person and so using pseudo stuttering is a way to advertise yourself as a person who stutters and then you're all, then you don't have to as soon as you advertise then your then your your nervousness or your um un, your worry or anxiety about am i am i going to stutter am i going to stutter is gone because you've already stuttered and you've already owned that as part of your identity and so that is a way that we use it with adults a lot but you can use it with kids too i don't know that i specifically have used it with um preschool kids at this point as much but definitely school age kids Yes and I really like the name like let's play with a speech that makes it so informal and it's a nice way to just go about it without adding to the anxiety that's already there right um, and we all talk differently right like you can try different mm-hmm. accents you can be silly you watch a tv show and you try to imitate that accent you um here you go like you know i have learned an american accent after being here for some years and when i go back i talk um i try to use my indian english and when i'm home i try mm-hmm. to use in, i use indian english and my grammar changes so we all code switch a little bit and so why not make this playful why does it have to be like oh my god there is this thing stuttering that's happening and we have to like stop it or anything like that like why can't it be something that you're playing with a little bit too correct me if i'm wrong but would it be right to say that if the person with stuttering is so anxious it automatically makes things more trickier while speaking for him so trying to get the anxiety out of the way might help Yeah for sure any any uh, any increased anxiety or any emotional arousal whether it's excitement or anxiety or tiredness or happiness or lack of routine mm-hmm. those all kind of things that preschool kids have more stuttering with so if you sort of that's why the the um, the uh, advertising your stuttering by sort of stuttering then reduces that anxiety um or reduces that emotional arousal because there is this feeling that people who stutter have more anxiety than others and it's not true they just have same they have they may have similar amounts of anxiety it's just that you can hear the anxiety in their speech sometimes like me and you are people who don't stutter when they have we have anxiety sometimes we have migraines nobody can see it sometimes when mm-hmm. i'm feeling anxious about things maybe my legs are hurting or my um heart rate racing but nobody sees those things right like but for a person who stutters when they're anxious you're sort of seeing it so that's part of it as well so i know this is a segment we've never had on our show uh and we thought it would be something nice and interesting to do as well as education at the same time we have compiled some statements that we hear a lot in our surroundings and in our clinical environments about stuttering and we'll try to characterize them as myths or facts okay um the child who is under 4 years of age who presents with stuttering like disfluencies will grow out of it because they are just you know developmental non-fluencies would that be a myth or a fact it's a myth i wish i had like a blow horn or something that i could go <laughs> and be like myth um and um that is a myth because what we know now is that um 
you know, even kids, many kids who start stuttering start even as early as three and younger than three. So there's no age um, at which stuttering increases or decreases. But we also, I don't know if you want more information or you just want me to say matter of fact, but for um, kids who start stuttering earlier, younger than three um, or at 33 months or 36 months actually tend to recover do tend to recover more, are uh, more likely to recover than kids who start stuttering later. But that doesn't mean that kids under the four, age of four will recover on their own. If a child is from a bilingual family, parents should encourage the child to speak one language only. Otherwise, there will be an increase in stuttering. Myth or fact? I've already told you this answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a myth. Um, and I think what's really cool is also realizing that this is a myth for many other disorders too. I think when we had intellectual impairments or when we had kids with um, language impairments or anything, we would always say, or they're late talkers, we would say, choose one language. And now we know that that's not true. And definitely for stuttering too, there is absolutely no reason to speak only one language, speak whatever you want. Stuttering is more common in males than females. And that's the fact. Um, we're lucky as females because we don't have any lucky things going for us in the, in the <laughs> world. But one part of being female is that we do stutter less than um, males who stutter. So, so I think four to one ratio is the prevalence rate. Okay. A child under five years of age should not be made aware of his stuttering as increase in awareness increases the stuttering severity. Yeah, and I, I guess I answered that too. Like, no, uh, that's not true. It's a myth. Um, and that, you know, talking about stuttering doesn't increase stuttering. Um, talking about stuttering just increases comfort and ease about communication in general. Stuttering is associated with differences in the brain. And it is not just a behavior that children learn or pick up from listening to other people who stutter. Would that be a myth or a fact? It is completely a fact. There are lots mm -hmm. and lots of studies that show that there are differences in brain, um, in uh, white matter, in, in, or in there's more research that looks at genetics, and there was something about the corpus callosum and right hemisphere activation and things like that. So there's a lot of studies that show that there are functional and or structural differences in the brains of people who stutter and the people who don't. Granted, we don't know if some of it is like at the start of stuttering or causing the stuttering or if it's over the years of stuttering, but there is definitely a physiological, biological um, impetus to cause stuttering. So it's not that someone just imitated someone and picked it up. Stuttering varies significantly over time. Sometimes people will have periods in which the stuttering goes away only to have it return. This variability is normal. That's a fact too. Um, it is sometimes, I don't know that, I don't know that it goes away for months or years. For some people it does, but I have a lot of adults who stutter, um, who are clients who say, or friends who say, you know, you wake up in the morning, you don't know what kind of day it's going to be. Like once you start talking, you're like, oh, today is going to be an easy speech day or a hard speech day or a stuttery day or things like that. So there is a lot of variability. Thank you for those. I know those 
really help us get our message out to our audience that there are many myths and facts related to stuttering out there. And it is our duty to go read more research and make sure we are following evidence-based practice. Are there any myths or facts that you would like to share with our listeners just to, you know, clear the air related to stuttering? I think the one thing that we all need to be really aware of is that there are all these stereotypes in the community, in the world about stuttering, about them being slower, about them being shyer, about people who stutter being less um, maybe intelligent, more introverted, more anxious. And none of that is true. Like all the research that has actually looked at these things find that people who stutter are just as introverted or extroverted. People who stutter are just as anxious or not anxious, are just as smart or not smart as the rest of us. And so removing those stereotypes as a community, um, as SLPs, like I think um, our job is to sort of advocate and start thinking about it as I think um, Chris Constantino um, and a couple of other people wrote a book about called Stammering Pride and Prejudice recently with the idea of taking away from the medical model of stuttering and starting to think of it as a social model and thinking of fluency as a continuum. And um, you can still want to improve your speech or reduce your struggle or make it easier. But the idea that it's not like fluency versus disfluency, that we all have a continuum of fluency or disfluency and that, you know, part of it is a societal way of responding to it. And, um, and, you know, I I think um, as, so I don't know if it's a myth or a fact, but just recognizing that we are part of the solution too, as human beings and as SLPs that we need to start creating a space where stuttering is just okay. A lot of our audience is, um, is in the student population right now. Mm-hmm. So are there any specific resources for student clinicians as well as any other fellow practicing clinicians so they can utilize to enhance their skilled services? So in the area of stuttering, I think there are some really cool podcasts. There's a podcast called Stutter Talk. Um, and um, that has a lot of people, those are just people who stutter talking about stuttering. Um, the um, Friends is a National Association for Young People Who Stutter, NSA, which is the National Stuttering Association, International St- Fluency Association. Those are all places, spaces that are owned by people who stutter. And I think as SLPs, we need to listen to people who stutter um, and their experiences and help grow as clinicians based on that and grow as clinicians based on what adults are saying that worked for them when they were kids or worked for them now. And so using those areas as resources, I think it's important to start read research, follow Courtney Bird, read what Vivian Siskin's writing, read what Dennis Drainer is writing, um, look at what Scott Yaris is doing. There's a lot of people that are publishing and it's good to read journals and know what's happening in the world of stuttering. Um, Chris Weber Fox, uh, Chris Weber and Ann Smith, um, all of them. But it's also important to know what the community of people who stutter from their perspective is telling us that they is good for them or important for them or what they want to do. So thinking about, um, so I think those are some good places to start and they will give you articles, they'll give you links to articles, but just getting, um, I, as a clinician, I feel like that's where I've grown the most is when I've just listen to people who stutter, tell me about their experiences in their life. 
all of that sounds like such great resources. I didn't know there was a podcast of individuals who stutter. That sounds like a great way to learn more about how it should we treat stuttering in a clinical setting. Well, Anu, I think we are ready to wrap up. Um, any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners? Um, just especially if your listeners are students and or people looking at research or interested in research, especially if you're in India, start thinking about ways you can look at bilingualism and stuttering. Start do. I think India is such a rich country in terms of the opportunities for clients, in terms of the opportunities for um, subject population, in terms of the number of people there, um, that we should be putting out more high quality research. And so my suggestion is just start running studies, even small studies, and start getting some, and then start list, get, create a place for Indian people who stutter to find a voice. Because right now we're only hearing the Western voices in stuttering. So I know there are some in the International Fluency Association or International Stuttering Awareness Day website, but like creating a space for um, Indian people who stutter, I think would be great because I think we need to hear their voices too. A couple of years ago, I was associated with Indian Association for Stuttering. We were like a small group of SLPs who were in there. We had this like three, four day workshop. And most of the uh, people with stuttering over there were like, oh, you guys have changed our perception of speech language pathologists. Because growing up, we were all in therapy. We didn't have like the best experiences. They were all about teaching us how not to stutter versus now right. the times have changed, how we can stutter better. Right. Least. So yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that Vivian Siskin says is that, you know, you're going to start, like I was talking to a 70 year old man today, a gentleman who called and he said, I'm just tired of stuttering. I've stuttered all my life. I want to get better. And I, he was like, you know, I learned some things, but I just have to keep using these strategies and then I can not stutter. And I was like, do you want to do that? Or do you just want to be able to say what you want to say and don't not care about stuttering? Um, you know, like, and, and he was like, yeah, I guess I could give that a try. And so I think that there is this, even he was like, you know, you have to be able to like, I, I want some strategies and I just have to keep practicing these strategies. And I was like, no, you don't like, you can just, you can just be the stuttering can just be, and it doesn't have to be like you have to change it and not stutter or anything like that. So yeah. um, it is this idea of like, let's hide the stuttering versus that's open. And so I was telling him, like, I can't change the fact that you stutter. Like that's just what is going to happen, but I can change how you stutter. I can help you change how you stutter. So it can be with less tension. It can be with less struggle. It can be more easygoing, forward flowing. I, 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 versus I want it to, but like, I can just help you make that change but you're going to stutter more before you get there. And you're going to sound like you're stuttering more because instead of going, I, 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 um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try anything. So. Thank you so much for your time today and just sharing your knowledge and experience with us and our listeners. We really had fun and we enjoyed this discussion. We are sure our listeners will enjoy it as well. Thank you yes. so much for having me. This was so much fun. I love talking about stuttering, as you can tell. Um, I love talking, period, but uh, about stuttering too. Um, so this was uh, getting to talk about something I enjoy is great. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us. We will be back soon with another episode and another topic. Please stay tuned to our social media to learn more. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today and we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes. 
Thank you. See you soon.